Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and online at gtownradio.com. This is What Do You Know About That? A radio show about anything and everything happening in our community, our city, and our world. Here are your hosts, Eric Gershnow and Mary Angela Saavedra. Hey, everybody. Good afternoon. Happy Thursday. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, Eric. How are you? Happy Thursday, Mary Angela. It's so nice to be in the air conditioning and escaping the the oppressive heat that we've been having lately. It's very nice. Well, it's funny because... Like six months ago, we were complaining about the oppressive cold, and I now it's like the oppressive heat. Oh my god! <laughs> and then the humidity on top of it. If we had a sump pump and fed to our garden, we'd be like <laughs> reaping in the crops. I'm telling you, with all the humidity. Yeah, it's, it's been a lot. I hope our listeners have been been hanging in in these long hot days of summer. But um, but it's I'm happy that it's Thursday. Thursday is little Friday. So thanks for tuning in, everyone. Tell us what's happening this day in science. All here. right, so. July 28th, this day in science, on July 28th, on Thursday, in 2017, scientists use slug slime for new adhesive. Hmm. Ew. Scientists from McGill University in Montreal announced the creation of a new type of surgical glue based on the properties of dusky slugs, which emit a sticky substance when frightened or surprised. So while traditional surgical glues show limitations when applied to wet surfaces, such as organs, this new glue demonstrated remarkable longevity, plugging a hole in a pig heart so fully that it remained liquid tight even after ten of thousands of inflations and deflations. Hmm. Additionally, no known side effects or irritations have been observed due to the use of the adhesive. Experts are enthusiastic about the material's practical applications. So is it actual stuff from a slug or it's something they recreated that's like the stuff from a slug? Well, I'm pretty sure if they try to launch it like commercially, could you imagine a warehouse where they're just milking slugs? No, absolutely not. Yeah, that's probably not a reality. So they've probably identified what that compound is, perhaps synthetically manufacture it. it. Okay. So I don't know. Does that make you feel better? It does. (laughs) Yeah. Slug slime. Yeah, no. I was like, ooh, no, please. I'm, you know, might have to have surgery one day and I definitely don't want slug slime in my body. But if it's like synthetically generated to be the same thing, like property wise as the slug slime, I guess that's okay. Good to know where you draw the line. I I don't want any real slug slime in my body. No, thank you. So what are your thoughts on natural flavors again? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Anyway. Yes, I know. This day in science, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So tell us, Mary Angela, what's on your radar in the neighborhood? Well, you know, the usual, unfortunately, this time of year, um, people are letting go of pets they can't handle, particularly cats. There's been a lot of cats showing up in the neighborhood. Yeah, I've noticed that. Yeah, and there are posts everywhere. People are like, this cat just showed up and it's clearly domesticated because it's like hovering by my door and it's on my porch. I actually saw someone who had posted of a cat that clearly, like you said, was collared so it belonged to somebody and they found it like 
dead out in the open. And it's like, what? Mm. Well, I mean, sometimes cats get out. Like, I understand that. But I just saw a post today where it was like, this cat belongs to my neighbor. And my neighbor decided to let the cat out because she went to try and give the cat back. And the neighbor was like, no, I can't handle the cat anymore. So I just let it go. And the person was like, you can't just kick your cat out. There are shelters. So basically this person was posting to be like, anybody want a cat? Please come rescue this very sweet cat. Mm. But it was just basically released out. And she was like, this cat won't survive out in the wild. We have foxes. We have really uh, aggressive raccoons. They'll go after cats. Well, and I think the other half of it, too, is you may have good intentions by trying to find it a home, but chances are you may end up, say, relinquishing it to somebody that's perhaps not even fit to own a cat, so then that cat could be back out on the streets again. If you can't handle your pet for various reasons, and I know various reasons come up and you can't, there are shelters, there are places that you could take them that is, I think, far more humane than throwing them just out into the wilderness that they're not accustomed to. I mean, they're not, they're domesticated animals. They can't handle themselves. I mean, and it's really hot right now and even worse in the winter, you know? So Mm -hmm. the domesticated ones oftentimes are cats that are allowed in and out. I mean, when I had a cat in North Carolina, the Mm -hmm. one and only time I ever had a cat, the cat was an indoor outdoor cat. That cat, you could open the door for that cat in the morning. Cat's name was Shaft and he would go out into the neighborhood. (laughs) I did not name the cat. (laughs) Just, Heads up, not did not name the cat. You're damn right. <laughs> did not name it. Anyway, um, yeah, you'd let him out in the morning, and you know by the evening he'd come back, and he'd be like spending his day out. And one time he did come back pretty roughed up, so he definitely got into a scrap of something. That was the one time we had to take him to get surgery <laughs> because he had like this big wound uh, on his back from something, and you know they were like, okay, well. Stitch him up, and he had to wear the cone of shame for a couple of weeks while it healed, so he didn't, you know, mess with it. And we didn't let him out for a while, and then we let him out again, and the process started over. And then, after about three years, maybe not quite, maybe about two and a half years, he just didn't come back one just, day. Just he just disappeared. He didn't come back one day, and um, I mean, he did. I think it was maybe a couple months, and he showed up one more time, like just once to like say hello, and then. We didn't see him again after that ever. Perhaps he found his true love. Yeah, I don't know. And ran away. It happens. But anyway, point in the case here is that please don't just turn your cats out into the street. They're Not living right creatures now. too. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to mention was, as we're talking about this heat wave, there are a lot of things that I found out when um, sort of reading the posts about the temperatures that I didn't know. And one of those things uh, that I was unaware of is that if the temperature in your home is 95 degrees or mm-hmm. warmer, you shouldn't turn on electrical fans. I had no idea about that. Well, because the fan generates heat, right? Because of the motor? Or what? what's the reasoning there? That is a great question. So the Red Cross, which is where I got some of this information was, it says very specifically, do not use an electric fan when the indoor air temperature is over 95 degrees, using a fan can be more harmful than helpful when indoor air temperatures are hotter than your body temperature. Fan use may cause your body to gain heat instead of losing it. Focus on staying hydrated, taking a cool shower or bathe to cool your body, shutting out the sun and heat with curtains and moving to an air conditioned place to cool off is what it recommends. So, I mean... I know there are plenty of homes in Philadelphia that don't have air conditioners at all. And, you know, I think of 
friends of ours that lives in an apartment not too far from here over the summers, and they did not have any AC. They didn't have window units. They didn't have anything. So during times like this, yeah, they would turn all kinds of electric fans on and just sit in the wind tunnel in their living rooms. But I'm sure the indoor temperatures were above 95 degrees. And oh, yeah. It so definitely blowing hot air on people. Yeah, I mean... It explains it, yeah. a lot. I had I had no idea, but that's straight from the Red Cross. So just think about that. But one key thing that I kept reading everywhere was about hydration. And that's something that I never think about. I mean, I, I get thirsty, but I don't get thirsty that often. I have to kind of make myself drink water. But in times of heat, like severe heat, like we're having right now, right? Mm-hmm. You're sweating more. So you're actually using what bit of water your body has to, to sweat and perspire, which is what's keeping you cool and keeping you from getting heat stroke, even in the like, you know, 10 minutes that you walk down the street or walk to your car if you're, you know, right. going somewhere or whatever. So staying hydrated, even if you're working in air conditioning and all of that stuff, you still need to stay really yeah, hydrated. It, just, it allows you to give off heat by on sweating. These, on these hot days, um, for sure. Yeah. So, and then it, it also recommends, like it said, cool showers. Um, stay indoors as much as possible, but make the, sure that those indoors, if it's not air conditioned, are shaded. Try to block out the sun. Keep those temperatures down inside as much as you can, or if you can, go somewhere. Um, they recommend libraries, malls, stores. If you need to and spend it's, time, it's kind of a big thing because it's not just say in Philly. I was listening to NPR the other day, and they were talking about in the UK they're hitting record temperatures. Yeah, no, it's it's everywhere. We're getting mm-hmm. real, real, real hot in a lot of places more than not these days. So, but please take care of yourself, stay hydrated, stay cool. That's right. That's all I got. All right, thank you for that public service announcement. Anything else on your radar? No. Do you have anything on yours? Uh, The only thing really on my radar, and this is truly of personal interest, you know, I usually pay attention to some of the acts that are coming through and performing in the city, not as closely as I have, just because there have been like other things going on this month. But I just saw come up recently, uh, Robert Cray is coming to Glenside at the Keswick in September. If you don't know who Robert Cray is, he's sort of billed as a blues artist, but he's really much more than that. And um, he's he's a really talented singer-songwriter who happens to also be a, a really smooth killer guitar player. So just FYI, my plan is to be there. That's September 9th at the Keswick. All right, well, that but, sounds like a cool concert. Yeah, I, I, you know, if you're around, check it out. Maybe, maybe we'll be there. I know you will. Oh, no <laughs> doubt about it. <laughs> All right, well, stick around. We'll be back in just a minute with our main topic of the day. All right, Eric, uh, what are we talking about today? Oh, you know what we're talking about today. What are we talking about? We're talking about our new favorite superhero, the mantis shrimp. Yay, Yay the mantis shrimp. The mantis shrimp. <laughs> Listeners are probably thinking, what are they talking about? Okay, so let's do tell, a little t- recap Tell us here. about the mantis shrimp. What's that? Tell us about the mantis shrimp. I'm gonna tell, well, I'm going to tell you leading the story leading up to the discovery, our discovery okay. of the mantis shrimp. It begins on a day just like today. 
you had discovered, this is from one of our favorite game manufacturers, and I'll briefly plug them here, but it's called The Oatmeal. They originally, some of you might be familiar with them because they came up with the game Exploding Kittens. And that's probably their most popular game. Yes, but they're graphic artists. Yes. So make no mistake, they're not game makers. They are graphic artists who had a comic and a web series and all this great stuff for a long, long time. Very, very funny um, internet comics for years. And then they decided to make games because why not use their comic genius for good and make games. So yes, Exploding Kittens is one of their first ones. And now they have about a billion games. And one of their newest games is called... It's just called Mantis. It's just called Mantis. Yes. Uh, and it's fun. And it's based on um, the Mantis shrimp. Right. So as you mentioned, these guys are artists. And the game is really just an excuse for them to just get really creative artistically. Correct. So a lot of their art comes through in the game elements and clearly they were inspired this game obviously is inspired by the mantis shrimp so what are we talking about here so they actually have and you purchased the game the uh, strategy behind the game is sort of based on this theme that they are drawing from the mantis shrimp so i'll introduce it reading from just a little bit from this pamphlet here I'm not, I'm not going to read verbatim. Here. Okay. But basically, they're talking about how when you're considering vision, dogs have two types of receptor cones, those that are green and blue, and then the colors that they can make in combination with each other. Humans have three, so green, blue, and red, and the combinations that they can make with that. The only other more complex eye is, say, with butterflies, which have actually up to five cones. So in addition to those existing color receptors they have two that cover a spectrum that's outside of our visible spectrum so two colors that we have no idea what they make and how the butterfly actually sees with this added number of cones so to put it into perspective here we're talking about the mantis shrimp when it comes to color vision they're probably at the top of the food chain and the reason has to do with the number of cones, receptors that they have in their eyes that allow them to see colors within this, basically the wave spectrum of energy. How so many cones do you remember do how have? many cones? I think it's like 16 or something. That's right. It's 16 color receptive cones. So it's a little crazy. And before I really get into that, I want to take a step back here and just talk generally what, again, is a mantis shrimp, if I'm asking that question. What do you know about that? Yeah, up until we got this game, I had no idea what a mantis shrimp was. Exactly. I hadn't even heard of it before. Maybe. But once we picked up this game, we started to immediate i started to immediately youtube just like everybody else does <laughs> i have to youtube this what is a mantis shrimp and there's some really cool videos out there there is one i think that was like national geographic or something but some of the content there at least the way they present it it's really 
designed to be dramatic, right? They'll list the facts there, but then they they make it really dramatic, and sometimes they do they'll do some visual enhancement, and in one case it looked like there was, but if you were to actually YouTube, there's a series of videos called True Facts About dot dot dot. Mm-hmm. You've seen them, right? Yeah. It's this guy who narrates like this. <laughs> yeah. And he's he's a bit dry and he's telling some factoids interspersed with sarcasm. So there's humor there, but there's some really good footage that's presented there that talks about some of the really unique aspects that make the mantis shrimp just something to be in awe of. So what is a mantis shrimp? It's it's actually called a stomatopod. But it's called a shrimp because it has what looks like the tail of a shrimp. It's about 12 inches, 6 to 12 inches long on Ooh, average. it's a big boy. Yeah, right? It's huge. It's a big shrimp. It's huge. But the back half of it looks like a shrimp, depending on the species you're talking about. So there's actually 450 different species of mantis shrimp. And they all splinter from this prehistoric underwater bug, this crustacean, um, defining into its own species about 340 million years ago. So you're talking 340 million years of evolution. This mantis shrimp is an underwater predator. Hmm. That's what it is. So the back half looks like a lobster. The front half is more, as you can imagine, mantis-like. So... Of the different species, there's two primary types of shrimp. And I put this lovely little PowerPoint together to show you. Thank you. So you folks at home can't see this, but Mary Angela is looking at this picture. The one she's familiar with is what's called a peacock mantis shrimp. And that's the one we're going to primarily talk about here. The other one, if you look at it over the top, it almost looks like a gigantic termite. It's long and it's flat and it's creepy looking. It's monochromatic. But it has these retractable arms that it uses to spear soft tissue creatures like shrimp and snails. So it's like a grabber. But the one that the game is based off of and the one that you will find probably the most footage about is not the spearers, but the smashers, what they call the smashers. Um, Just to note, they're referred to by the ancient Assyrians as sea locusts. Because if they're not handled properly, they can be very unpleasant. Mm. And uh, uh, a modern reference is what thumb splitter I've heard. And this is specific to the smashers. So what are the smashers? The smashers are these clubs that sit in front of the mantis shrimp, like these little arms, right? And you've seen them in action. Yeah. They're super, super fast. So the outer surface of them is made out of something called hydroxyapatite. And maybe or maybe not, you've heard of that term before, it's the same material that makes up your teeth enamel. So this is hard stuff, really hard stuff. But underneath of that layer of hydroxyapatite is this elastic polysaccharide called chitin. It's the stuff that makes up insect exoskeletons, right? But it's soft enough and flexible enough that when this guy hits you with his clubs, and we'll get to the reason why, if there's any crack in the enamel 
on the outer edge, it doesn't shatter because the chitin acts as a shock absorber. And scientists have like been studying this using carbon fiber to try and mimic that for like bulletproof vests and things mm -hmm. like that. So why do they have these extra strength, super duper clubs in front of them, you may ask? To beat you over the head with. To beat you with. <laughs> this is what really garners their kick butt reputation. All right, gotcha. and this is what earns the mantis shrimp a mantle on the the list of you know top predators in the ocean, because this guy does not fool around. So these clubs they use to attack with, and they accelerate at a rate of say zero to fifty one mile per hour in the blink of an eye. They go so fast that when they do actually hit its target, the water in the vicinity starts to boil. And it boils and creates these little vapor bubbles. So if you can imagine you're imparting so much energy so fast, the water absorbs that energy and causes a vapor bubble. So a vapor bubble is basically just a little area where you have water molecules just bouncing around so fast they turn into a gas. So they have so much energy trapped into them that when they collapse, this is called cavitation, when those air bubbles collapse and just become water molecules, you know, joined like regular water, that energy's got to go somewhere. So it forms a shock wave. So even when they don't actually hit the target, that energy just from the cavitation is enough to stun their prey. And if you watch this True Facts video, they get up and close. You can see little flashes of light that occur around the cavitation bubble when oh, it hits. Because wow. there's so much energy in it, it like It's a little... insane. Wow. So just about any video you see, you'll see these guys like digging into, it could be anything, crabs, it could be anything hard-shelled, they can smash it to bits. And like they just, like they pretty much, you can't put them in an aquarium with other animals. Well, yeah, they'd kill everything. They Exactly. <laughs> it's just like if it's not another mantis shrimp, it's a smorgasbord. Okay, that's my dinner. That's my dinner. That's my dinner. There's wow. really no stopping the mantis shrimp. Like sea urchins aren't even safe. Exactly. Yeah. Like most predators, they tend to be kind of solitary. They live on their own. Uh, and this is kind of across the board for most species. They live about 60 years. Interesting factoid, they tend to mate for life. Hmm. I guess because it's like too much hassle to deal with other mantis shrimp. It's like, okay, I'm good. Okay. Okay, I'm just gonna go this, around. This is it. This is this is my mate. We're good. Right. Well, yeah, you wouldn't wanna you wouldn't wanna make a mantis shrimp jealous. <laughs> you you wouldn't wanna try to move Unless in. Unless you're a, gonna get clubbed on a mantis shrimp's mate, they might things could get ugly. So one of the like just captivating videos that we came across was it was I'm I'm pretty sure it was one of like his History Channel or something. Anyway, this octopus is shown chasing down this mantis shrimp like it thinks oh hey this is just like another crab i'm i'm gonna you know have some dinner here so this octopus follows this mantis shrimp to its lair to which the mantis shrimp you know turns around and flashes he's got like i think this is why they call him the peacock but he's got like these like fluorescent colored panels that sort of stick out that make him look bigger but then he just decides to just club the octopus and it's insane. He hits the octopus so hard he flings off the octopus, and then you just see the entire octopus like stunned. All his tentacles just go flying up like he just got hit by a bullet. 
It's insane. Yeah, I, I remember watching that one and yeah. just thinking that, that poor octopus doesn't know what hit him, literally. It, exactly. So to circle back around here a little bit, and we'll talk about the theme that was tied in with the game, right? So this has to do with mantis shrimp vision. Correct. Seeing colors. Right. In addition to that, their eyes are actually segmented into three parts. Almost like imagine if you had for each eye three separate, essentially three separate eyes, mm. you know, sort of stacked together. It's kind of weird. That is creepy. It's a really bit. weird. Mm-hmm. And especially if you happen to YouTube it, you'll see it's got, it's not really like an iris, but there's this center point that just sort of moves around. It's, it's really creepy. And there's three separate bands that separate the eye. But they're on independent little stalks, so they move independent of each other. And again, like the game said, they have 16 photoreceptors. So they basically perceive the world in like psychedelic rainbow colors that we can't even perceive. Mm-hmm. That's basically it. Uh, but they can see polarized light, which helps to increase the contrast of objects. So mm. that's interesting. Um, that's probably really helpful underwater. Like I be, would think so. You know, being what's able interesting is like you they can't differentiate so much, you know, the fine details between say one color or another because they're looking at an entire spectrum of colors that we can't even perceive. But yeah, it, it gives them an amazing depth perception from what they can tell. Uh, I'm sure they'll figure out some sort of like virtual reality <laughs> <laughs> way to imitate being a a mantis shrimp, perhaps. Sure. So yeah, I wonder how they were discovered. You know, if we can't keep them in aquariums, it's not like, well, you said they were called the thumb splitter. So, like, did people try to catch them at some point? or? Well, I've seen something? a lot of people who, who have them in aquariums that are kind of living solo. The other danger I think you have to be considerate of is, I mean, they, they could easily smash the glass open, right? Right. Yeah, I was like, with that kind of force, I can't imagine you could yeah. keep them in an aquarium. I mean, unless it was, like, really dense glass, but even still, I mean... Uh, again, I was on this YouTube craze. This one guy had posted, um, having picked, having caught one. He was in a boat, and it like whacked him on his shoe, and it totally burned a hole through his shoe. Pulled his shoe off, and his his foot was bleeding. Oh, yeah. I'm like, ooh, no, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. So no. did did you find out where they live? Like, what waters are they? Warm waters, cold waters. So it's primarily waters? tropical. Okay. Yeah. They tend to like hang out by the reefs, so that okay. gives you an idea. Coral reefs. So definitely, yeah. I mean, for them, that's like smorgasbord, I'm sure. Yeah. So just be careful if you're going... Snorkeling you know, and you see a beautiful shrimp-looking rainbow-colored lobster. Stay away. It's not a rainbow-colored lobster. It is the deadly mantis shrimp. Exactly. I, you know, and I, I... This is weird. So I went as far to even Google, do, do people even like consider eating them? So I... Personally, I'm not really a huge fan of underwater bugs. You know, um, maybe I'll have a shrimp every now and then. Not really a lobster fan. You know, lobsters, I would say, comparatively are much cuter than the mantis shrimp. Specifically, the the ones that are the spears. Those guys, they, they like I said, they look like gigantic termites. And those are the ones where I saw guys were fishing for them and cooking them on the grill. And they just looked so unappealing. Like literally gigantic bugs, underwater bugs. Um, and they were dark and gray, and 
um, sort of like fragmented. Their bodies were fragmented the way like an insect would be. I was yes, like, but no, they I taste so good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've eaten lobster since I was a little kid, and I'm telling you, it just it's the best ever. Sorry, I know they might be underwater bugs, but I'm okay with it. If, if above ground bugs tasted that good, I'd eat them. <laughs> well, but you know they don't. They, 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 for some reason, they don't. They don't have as much delicious well, meat you, on you them. You haven't actually tried an insect, because, have you? Uh, but above ground bugs don't have meat like that because they're above ground. Underwater bugs are all like waterlogged, so their meat is all like <laughs> soft and and delicious, and you steam it, and it's yummy. <laughs> this is Mary Angela logic, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> well, I mean, feed me a delicious above ground bug, and I'll eat it. Yeah. Well. Maybe just as a side note, you know, in, in my research on the mantis shrimp, I, it, it kind of got me interested in looking up some other deadly underwater creatures, which if you really consider like the top 10 underwater predators or dangerous creatures, they're always creatures that emit some kind of poison. That seems to be the running sure. theme. I mean, it's either that fish. or they're gigantic. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, they're sharks, basically. Scorpion fish. Yeah. yeah the other predators or... Orcas. So what what other ones did you come across? Well, probably ones that are I think our audience are probably familiar with, perhaps like the Portuguese man of war. You, you can't you can't list the top ten um, dangerous under or, you know ocean species without mentioning the Portuguese man of war. Which again, a lot of these you'll find in tropical, subtropical areas. It's a xeno xenophore, which is actually uh, not a true jellyfish. Or a single or- organism. So if you actually look at a Portuguese man of war, mm. it's got this weird little tent with a fin. It's like inflated. It's yeah. really weird. It looks yeah, no, almost like it. a a plastic bag, a very clear, or even made out of glass. Even it's really um, it, kind of captivating to look at because it very it shimmers in in the daylight. Anyway, hanging from that is a completely separate organism, and that's where the tentacles come down. And to those listeners, whoever want to know the true answer to the the urban legend as to whether or not peeing on a jellyfish sting is is a good move don't do it okay <laughs> don't do it why the cdc advises you don't do it well that's because of germs that doesn't mean it doesn't work well a pee technically is sterile it's coming out of your body. Well, then why does the CDC say don't do it? Say Be- because it, there's there's it. no serious health benefit to it. So if you get stung by a jellyfish, if you happen to be out and about, even if it's a box jellyfish, which has really dangerous venom enough to kill a human being, you can spray it with vinegar. You want to spray it with vinegar. First, you want to scrape out. Apparently, it's like these stinging cells that yeah. actually come off. Yep. So they embed themselves in your skin. You want to scrape them out of your skin first because otherwise they'll just keep drilling into your skin. <sighs> and then you want to hit it with vinegar. Okay. So don't pee on a jellyfish sting. Use vinegar. Another public service announcement to our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> All right. Uh, what else is on your list? Let's see. We'll do this really quick here. Well, lionfish, obviously. If you haven't seen a lionfish, you know what a lionfish yep. looks like. It's got long spines. Stay away from it. Again, if you're going snorkeling, half this list is going to be in tropical areas. And I guarantee you most of these you'll find, and this is like separate research I had done for something else, but Australia is probably next to Africa the singular continent with the most poisonous 
creatures right, on it. Right, because Great Barrier Reef is there. Oh so, my gosh, like, the but, largest coral reef in the world is there. So, so there's that. Yes. But then when you go on land, even spiders, lizards. Sure. You know, um, small mammals. Yeah, they're all poisonous. Stay away. Some are cute. <laughs> Don't the hoppy Australia. ones are cute. Everything else is poisonous. <laughs> Stay away. All right, what else? Uh, let's see. Next. Cone snails. Have you ever heard of cone snails? No, what's a cone snail? Well, they're, they, they look like a regular snail, except they, and this is, I think, part of why they're called a cone snail. They just have this long tube that's their mouth. It's about 10 to 15 centimeters long, hmm. which is kind of long for yeah, a mouth. Yeah, for a snail. But uh, super poisonous. Um, and again, you don't want to mess with these guys. They are deadly, venomous to human beings. So okay. if you ever come across a snail with a really long mouth, stay away. Uh, stingrays, obviously. Um, what can I say? The crocodile hunter. Need I say more? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then stonefish. Stonefish is like one of these really unattractive, creepy-looking fishes that dwells at the bottom of the ocean that you don't ever want to come across. You know, like they blend in with the bottom of the ocean floor. So that was something, you know, when I was a kid, I learned to, to snorkel when we lived in Gitmo um, because, you know, why not? You're on the Caribbean. Might as well learn to snorkel. But that was always one of my mom's greatest fears was that I would run into a stonefish or I would run into a scorpion fish, both of which, you know, for a tiny little eight-year-old would have definitely killed me oh, if yeah. I had come across them. No doubt. So, you know, I, I was trained very early as to what to look for. And it's the reason why we wore um, thick-soled shoes in the water all the time to swim. Because they like to hide around rocks and things. And if you're, you know, also the sand was made of coral, so it was rough sand. But you just didn't go into the water without thick-soled shoes because you could very easily put your foot on a a stonefish, rockfish, and, yeah, end up poisoned. And this is why, ladies and gentlemen, I don't go into the ocean. (laughs) I admire it from afar. It's beautiful. I love the ocean waves, the breeze hitting me. But... I won't really go in past knee deep simply because I don't really care to be part of the food chain. <laughs> I mean, I loved snorkeling. I thought it was great. I just always looked out for things that could kill me. That's <laughs> I mean, I would love to go snorkeling just to be up close, but you know, if I had like a big glass dome, that would be awesome. I'd be like, hey, look, I can see you, but there's this glass separating you from me. Sure. It's okay. Anything else on your list? No, those are the big ones. There's a couple other, but, you know, they just didn't make the cut for me. <sighs> oh, underwater snakes. Have you ever come across those? You mean eels? <laughs> no, actual <laughs> underwater snakes. They're uh, related to cobras and just as deadly. Their oh. venom is super deadly, but they are actually underwater snakes. They are snakes swimming underwater. And they're not eels. They're not eels. These are underwater snakes. Look mm. it up. Okay. Well, I do know, I mean, there are electric eels. They'll zap the crap out of you. Yeah. Again, I don't step foot in the ocean. But (laughs) hopefully some food for thought for our folks listening out there in Radio Land. Um, Yeah. If you got some thoughts about it, send us an email. If you know know something about underwater um, baddies. Or just just Google (laughs) the mantis shrimp. It's really cool. Trust me on this one. Sure. But uh, our email address is what do you know G-Town at gmail.com and uh, you could also find us on Facebook and Instagram at what do you know about that so let us know your thoughts 
Please stick around. Uh, we'll be joined here momentarily with uh, our segment, Who Are the Musicians in Our Neighborhood? We are joined today by Daniel De Jesus. So stick around. You're listening to 92.9 FM G-Town Radio. All right, we are back, and it's time for my favorite segment, Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood? Oh, yeah. And today, we are joined by Daniel DeJesus. Thank you so much for being here, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me. Please, tell us all a little bit about yourself. Who who are you? What kind of music do you make? How long have you been making music? (laughs) Well, I describe myself as a singing cellist, and I've been making records since 2006. A lot of my music tends to be in the rock pop vein um though much of my music as of late has been writing for other people and also uh writing strictly for strings and for voice uh so that's been kind of my main thing for a while and um yeah i've been um i've also been part of several different ensembles i've i you know i grew up here in philadelphia born and raised and uh, philadelphia is an amazing music city and uh, I currently work now as a, as a director of a music school called AMLA, Artists and Musicians of Latin America. Um, and it's under the uh, stewardship of Esperanza, which is um, in the Juniata part of the city, which is kind of like North Philadelphia, a little bit higher up um, geographically. And the, yeah, I'm really, I've been working as an advocate for making arts accessible since 2015. So I've been very much like a youth advocate um, and working in in that way. That's awesome. So um, stringed instruments are not always what we hear people play. Like what what drew you to that? Like how how long have you been been playing it and why? Um, Well, I think that it's very magical and mystical to say the instrument chose me. But um, I think in I think in some ways that's true, and then in some other ways I uh, had a, a a teacher that played the cello, and I thought she was cool, and it was like in sixth grade. And then I also had some friends who played musical instruments, and my ill knowledge of musical instruments at the time uh, led me to believe that maybe the cello was an instrument that would be better for me because um, I had like long gangly arms, and you know, like I thought maybe that would be better than the violin because I had uh, not had that opportunity to play the violin and I tried it but the cello looked like oh that's like my size like you know someone I think something I could play nice so you mentioned North Philadelphia is that where you grew up or I mean the last time I saw you was in the Germantown neighborhood so yeah well I uh I'm more of like a well I grew up around Olney nice town okay and then I moved to the northeast uh, when I was 17. Um, but because I, uh, was in a magnet school, I went to Kappa. And so I had to travel all the way to South Philly. Oh, wow. And then, um, much of my work in terms of nonprofit has been in North Philadelphia. And I went to a private school in North Philadelphia from like kindergarten to like eighth grade. I guess I'm just really like a person who's lived pretty much in, in those areas of, of, of Philadelphia, very much like a Northern, Philadelphian, hence why I don't have the South Philly accent. It never stuck. Picked up on that. That's okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's great. So um, you said, you know, cellist and singer, but also in the in the rock vein was how you sort of described your music. And um, I'm curious as to sort of how that came about. Did you, you know, always start writing music on your own or did you, you know, were you playing with other people and then that just, you know, came, came out of that? Like, how did how did we get there? Well, I, um, in high school, I was just like buying CDs all the time with any extra money that I made and my little disc man. And I um, went to an all art school. So a lot of the kids were very into things I had never heard of before. And um, sooner or later, uh, people like Tori Amos came into my sphere. Uh, people like, uh, uh, like, you know, Nirvana and like other bands like Pearl Jam. I was really into the Toadies for a while. The Smashing Pumpkins was really big. And so these were all the bands I was listening to. And um, I just remember that one album that Tori Amos had wrote, which was uh, Under the Pink. And that record just blew me away. That was the first thing I heard. And I just was a Tori head ever since. And I have listened to every single album since. Like anytime a new album comes out, I listen to it even now. So it, I I loved her story in terms of someone who had a classical background, but then wanted to really believed that like John Lennon was the Beethoven of our time, you know, like the song, just the music of our time. And I thought, yeah, I would love to make songs. And then when you're in college, everybody's in a rock band. But I had played around with making my own songs, not thinking that they would go anywhere. But that's kind of like, yeah, that's what got me started. Mama Tori, she taught me everything I know. I love it. So talk a little bit about this advocacy work you say you're involved in. That's really interesting to me. Um, how did that come about? Is that always something you've been passionate about or knew you just wanted to get involved in that way? Well, I didn't really do, I mean, it kind of fell on my lap in some ways. I uh, had off and on worked with an organization called the Taller Puerto Ricano for many years. It's an incredible institution um, devoted to Puerto Rican, Latino arts and culture, uh, I say Puerto Rican and Latino only because it was founded by Puerto Rican people. And then it really expanded its, its mission and its work to include um, really, you know, to, to, to really uncover and to, and to educate and share this, um, you know, the, the social, cultural uh, and, and phenomenal, you know, tapestry that is Latin America and the Caribbean and all these things. So, the the diaspora was something that you know I grew up with I already knew I kind of just fit right in with the those folks I went to art school it just made sense uh, I was able to get a job there and then I uh, was doing something else uh, just working in an office doing uh, doing clerical work and I got a call to run a program because the person who was running that program uh, called the youth artist program had passed away and the director called me specifically because she really believed that I would be the best person for the job since we had already built a long, you know, term working relationship. Uh, so Dr. Carmen Febo, who was the executive director, she's no longer the executive director, um, asked me to come and run this program. And this changed my life. I think the kids changed me more than I, I changed any of them because I started to understand how privileged I was in terms of having uh, parents that were really putting education first. And then how many young people who are, I'm talking like really talented, like extremely talented, how these domestic, you know, how uh, an unsafe domestic environment makes it so difficult for them to 
pursue anything, uh, let alone the arts. It's like, obviously, someone can't do their homework if they don't feel safe in their house. Or uh, a person who's dealing with even something as like depression and just or teen angst or any a myriad of different things, you know, but without services, right? You know, having access to, you know, having access to a place that you feel safe, having access to a place where you feel like your voice matters. And so the youth artist program was not what I thought it was. I thought it was going to be a place where I taught young people art and really what it was, uh, it was a sanctuary. I created a sanctuary where art was the tool for young people to come and feel like they could express their their emotional selves, their authentic selves, and where they could feel safe, but also really be inspired to pursue an art career if they wanted to and receive that training. But I learned so much about what's how difficult it is to give all that training in the world and still that young person has way too many obstacles to climb to to pursue a career. Uh, some of those young people have pursued the arts and are really doing swimmingly. And then others, you know, it was just like, it's, it's the mountains too high to climb. Mm-hmm. And so they have to find a different route. And so those are some of the things I was doing. I was trying to figure out before I left and, and took on this other work at AMLA, which I was already on the board of directors and AMLA is a music school that was founded by Jesse Bermudez. Originally it was a uh, a space where they protected musicians and their wages and their rights as musicians, uh, specifically musicians who were working in like the Latin American, you know, tropical music scene so that they would be paid fairly. But those people put that group together around 1982 and then they transformed it into a school as part of what they did. They booked musicians, they helped musicians with, you know, with advertising them, you know, promoting them and then making sure that, you know, clubs paid them uh, what they were due. But AMLA has its evolutions. And after the pandemic, it was very, it was really decimated by that. Its programming was really down. And so I applied for the job uh, because I had several people that came up to me and asked, you know, like, you know, we think you'd really be the best person for this job. We've seen what you've done with YAP and what you've done in the community over the years. And You've been a part of our board and I, we, 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 we think you would be the best person. And so I applied and I've been working there since August. It's almost a year now. And it's, um, it's kind of yap all over again, but it's, it's really, uh, it's good work. And it's all about making families feel like they can access music education. It's affordable. The young people get to be inspired. They get to make some, something that they feel proud of. And the collaborations are incredible. Like the resources at Esperanza are, are immense. We were able to perform at the Kimmel Center. We were able to do a, a wonderful showcase for the, you know, the winter for the Christmas show. It's like a show called Christmas in the Barrio. And then we do a little thing with, with them for um, the end of the year recital. And beyond that, you know, families come in and they really show their gratitude. And even parents will take a lesson because it's like their chance to like express their creative selves. And so it's just very, it's really amazing. Yeah, so I get like, to, I get to take that role of being the person that presents and like gets to open up those opportunities. That's awesome. That sounds incredible. I used to work with an organization here in Germantown actually um, called Commonwealth Youth Choirs and they had a program called Find Your Instrument. And that's what they did is they went into these underserved schools and where there was no music, no anything, and just help these children literally find their instrument. And if that happened to be their voice, it was their voice. If it happened, you know, it was, it was just 
presenting those opportunities and I like you were saying I mean these were little kids elementary school kid ages but I could see just the difference just that did like how exposing children to music and making opportunities possible in in the arts field just changes lives it really does which is that's great that's great work I'm so excited to hear that you're doing that um Eric I was just gonna say just to add to that I mean I imagine that's that's probably a huge chunk of your time right I mean, you're you're basically managing the whole production there. Yeah, it definitely is. I've kind of taken a backseat from performing for a while, uh, for now, because much of my work has been disorganization, but also commissions. I'm currently working on a project called Trans Diaries, which I'm really excited about with Beth Morrison Projects mm-hmm. uh, in New York. And then I'm also working on trying to develop a story and some uh, libretto and something to start with. I have this dream of writing a horror opera. <laughs> and so I'm working on that. And I'm doing that through a residency with the Bearded Ladies Cabaret. Oh, they're so great. Here in Philadelphia. Great. The ladies are so <laughs> yeah. great. They're so and great. And they're amazing. Yeah. And I'm also, um, I was a recipient of a grant with a group of other artists to develop a short animated piece called Alex of the Labyrinth. And that's kind of looking at how Latinx people were affected by COVID-19 during the pandemic. And then I'm also uh, working on uh, delivering a piece through the Steven Gerber Foundation, um, writing a, an original piece inspired by his compositions that's due like June of next year or so. Well, you are Not busy. Too many performing. <laughs> right, I was going to be like, there is no time for performing it, it, in the middle this of that. Is, it's all project based. No, that's cool. But that's fantastic. Those are some exciting yeah. projects coming out. Like that's. It's just kind of transformed into that. And I used to be the person that did the tours and everything. You know, I, for a while, I had my own bands, at a band called Tiva Tiva for a minute, and then I did uh, my work under my own like last name as De Jesus, and then I played with a band called Rasputina for a couple years. Uh, that's like an all cello rock band oh, cool. and that band they had a, a, a larger base so the, you know I got to like taste what it's like to tour the country you know and to do all of that kind of thing but that's awesome yeah. that gives you those experiences right like you get to yeah and then like I think what you're those. doing now really is the kind of the, the next tier up right this is the evolution of, of or the progression of your, your career so it, it sounds like yeah. a good direction and then on top good. of that, you're doing, sorry to interrupt you, you're doing multimedia as well. You've, you're a visual artist too, yeah? Yeah, that's where the Alex collaboration is is kind of taking place. Um, I'm working on uh, developing designs. Right now we're kind of like in a story and like contract phase and we're doing interviews and trying to get our resources together. But um, I'm working on the, um, the storyboard and character designs for, for that particular piece. That's really cool. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about this track we're going to hear. Tell us about it. Well, in uh, 2021, I released an album called Curie. Curie is uh, a particular, uh, it's, it's known in like, um, you know, liturgy in, t- in terms of Catholic liturgy as, uh, you know, have mercy on us. And it's definitely a staple part of any kind of mass that you would probably hear, a musical mass. And so inspired by that mode or that kind of assemblage of text, um, at the time I was reading a lot of 
work by, um, I was reading uh, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, inspired by Torianus, again. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was also really interested in kind of looking at like my own mental health, kind of through the lens of like something mystical. I I just uh, was just really fascinated by that particular book and talking about like these different levels that the soul like climbs or that finds these different, you know, spaces. Uh, It was very uh, fascinating text. Um, I can't quote it, unfortunately. But at the time, I was kind of like really dealing with trying to do a lot of self-evaluation and uh, self-love, self-healing, and really coming more to terms with my sexuality, you know, coming from a very evangelical background. And I had like stopped going to church and I had like tried distancing myself more and more from that community for myself. You know, everybody's path is different. But that for me, that was the right thing to do. And then really also come to terms with the community I was I was with and kind of like uh, non-binary identities. And I wrote this album where I took all of the, I took some texts from the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and all of the self-deprecating things I would say to myself, you know, all of these things I would, I would, uh, I, I would tell myself or believe in myself. And I just removed them and put them in this death mass and kind of just laid them to rest through this record. And so that was very much like a self-therapy, cathartic kind of experience. And shortly thereafter, that album was released. Um, My life definitely changed. It really, really changed to the point where I'm now uh, in a very loving relationship with someone, a very healthy relationship. And I'm also feel like the work that I do as a youth advocate and as someone who works with young people, I feel like I can do a much better job. I feel like I'm just much, that much more emotionally and, and uh, ready to, to work with um, that, kind, that population. And I can be my most authentic self. So that record was great. And this song is called Hallelujah. And it's not Hallelujah, um, like the Leonard Cohen uh, Hallelujah. It's, the, uh, it's my own version of it. Nice. Let's listen to Let's it. Let's take a listen. Tag 
That's great. I oh, I thanks. like it a lot. I hear that Mama Tori influence a little bit in there, though. <laughs> I was like, I hear that. Yeah, um, she's in. She's there. Where did you record it? Home studio or someone else? Or yeah, this particular record, I uh, was able to gather up some 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 friends to help me. Uh, I went to a place called Colmado, uh, the the studio in Trenton, New Jersey. Okay. It's run by a very talented uh, hip hop artist. Um, his name is Josue Lora. And then I got it mixed by my the engineer I've been working with since 2016. His name is Robbie Simmons. Okay. The first time he mixed uh, something for me, I was like, this is it. This person gets me. They know exactly what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. Very little notes. I feel like I don't have to do a lot of back and forth. And um, he mixes and masters. He's mixed and mastered everything I've put out since 2016. Nice. Well, where can people find you? Well, folks can find me online at danieldejesus.art. They can also find me at dejesuscello at uh, Instagram and Facebook. And uh, folks can also find me putting out a new record in about a month. So looking forward to that. It's uh, called Sonnets of Dark Love or Sonetos de Amor Oscuro. It's my second Spanish album. I put one out in 2016, but I haven't done one since. But this, all the text comes from Federico Garcia Lorca, who was a writer from Spain and he wrote a book called A Poet in New York. And these are sonnets that were published in the 80s, well after his untimely death uh, under the Franco regime. So um, this is kind of an honor to him, and I'm looking forward to putting that out and having people take a listen to that. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to hear it. You gave me goosebumps just describing it, so I'm like, cool, can't wait to hear that. Awesome. Daniel DeJesus, thank you so much for coming on the show and being a guest with us thank today. Thank you. It was great talking to you and hearing all thank about it. Thank you so much. I'm glad we were able to uh, make this happen, and thank you for your persistence. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Have a great rest of your evening. Thanks again for being with us. You too. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks so much for tuning in today. If you have some thoughts about something maybe we should feature on an upcoming episode, please don't hesitate to email us at whatdoyouknowgtown at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at what do you know about that. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great rest of your week and happy weekend. All right. Stay cool, everyone.